0: you're listening to the art problems podcast episode 22 i'm your host patty johnson this is the podcast where we talk about how to get more shows grants and residencies and it's also the show where we talk about what's going on on the inside the art world, so that you can more easily navigate it. And today, my good friend William Pohida joins me to talk about the art fairs. So William, welcome. How are you? What's the context at the art fairs? What's new?
1: Well, I'm good, and thanks for having me on, Patty. So I thought we'd just maybe start with uh, a little bit of what's going on in 2023 uh, for the backdrop for the art fair weeks that we had, which uh, the fair is now stretched from May 10th to May 21st with like 15 art fairs uh, varying in size from like the indie and offbeat events like Salon Zurcher, Fridge Art Fair, Spring Break Secret Salon, to the kind of heavyweights TFAF, you know, with TFAF and Freeze, you know, and then you have Nada, Volta, and Independent sort of squished comfortably in the middle tier of the fairs. And this year, you know, uh, the pandemic is sort of in the rearview mirror. But these fairs opened against, like, the continuing economic uncertainty of inflation, the debt ceiling crisis, the war in Ukraine, and the early phases of our twenty twenty four presidential campaign. And I just sort of and, say and these things. don't
0: too. forget that succession was wrapping up. Uh, I've been very involved in that. TV oh, show. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I went
1: into a succession, you know, reading hole Monday morning, just reading all of the recaps and getting like people's perspectives on it. Yeah, but you know, I think that kind of economic or political uncertainty is not great for collectors. They tend no. not to buy in periods of uncertainty. So, well, curious how. Uh, what you found out about that. And then I would just say, you know, aesthetically, we've been sort of in a period where identity based figurative painting has been sort of driving the narrative of contemporary art. But based on my experience of going to Nada this year, I would really just say it's painting at this point with all styles and approaches welcome in the kind of atemporal way that Laura Hopman really identified back in 2014 with the forever now. And maybe we can come back around to that a little bit later. But that was sort of, you know, some of my context for uh, heading out to see the fairs this year. And, you know, I only ended up going to NADA in part because that was the one where I got a VIP pass and was not willing to pay, you know, the 60 or $70 to uh, head to freeze.
0: Well, and I think this is important context, too, right? Like the art fairs suddenly, I think almost all of them have raised their prices. They are considerably more expensive. Uh, I know that I reached out to Freeze early on many, many months before the New York iteration took place to ask, uh, because they do have on their website that they make educational tickets available. So I wanted to see if we could make some discounted tickets available to our membership And it wasn't just that uh, they declined, which I kind of expected they would, but that I never heard from them at all. It actually made me question whether the program even existed. I mean, I get that. (laughs) I get that like, you know, a membership may not seem to them to be educational on the level of, say, like post-secondary education, but I still felt uh, frankly offended by it.
1: Yeah. And I think that that sort of is one of these questions of why does it matter when the ticket prices are high? I mean, I feel like the cheapest ticket I could have gotten to freeze would have been the equivalent of seeing like two movies at the theater back to back, you know, so like four hours for say a $55 ticket after 2pm on the weekends. But, you know, it's, it's different than the gallery system, you know, at least... The norm is still that you don't have to pay to just go look at artwork, and you know, as an artist, I know that the the art is available to people to see freely. You know, you don't have to buy a ticket to walk into a gallery, uh, so that's the norm. And then you have the art fairs now, which are sort of increasingly uh, making it more and more expensive at different times, even to get access to the artwork.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think Freeze, the, the price was like $209 for a VIP pass. So that's quite a bit of money. By the weekend, you could get something for a little bit less. But even still, I think for the average artist who is a professional and I think benefits from seeing these things, even if they're not uh, directly in that market, like it's it's really important to be able to have those spaces available and open and you know it's i think it's not just for the development of the the industry and that sort of thing i think it also uh has to do and we talked about this on explain me a lot which was the previous podcast uh, about this freeze has a, a tradition of sort of landing in nonprofit spaces and then colonizing them you know <sighs> And there's something about that that's just really, it's really gross.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it's really sort of offensive at The Shed, which has always been a sort of house of contradictions, in that it was really proposed as this democratic experimental space for art. And that's really hard to live up to when the cheapest ticket is $55 after 2 p.m. on the weekend, right? So it runs definitely against the nonprofit you know, grain, it makes it really hard to access and see what contemporary art looks like, you know, and I feel like in some way, I just, I I don't feel like we should have to subsidize the retail shopping experience for very wealthy people. In fact, it's sort of traditionally been the other way around, you know, the gallery model, at least we could go look at the art that's on sale for free without having to buy it or pay, you know, to get in to get access to it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> all these things I think are, are changes to the landscape that uh, I would consider not particularly positive. Now, I went to see uh, the future fair. I saw Freeze and Nada. Uh, and that was the extent of what I saw. I felt, I guess I would say somewhat regretful for not seeing the independent art fair. So if we sort of The way that I looked at these art fairs is that they took place in sort of phases, week one and week two. So in week one, the independent ran and future fair ran. And then in week two, we had Nana and Freeze. And if I were to pick a favorite, uh, I would pick week one. And I think most of the dealers would too, because in- and keep in mind that these are my impressions based on a handful of people that I have spoken to at all of these fairs. It does not mean that I have, like, that uh, I have enough data to to draw necessarily reliable conclusions. But uh, so at future fair, I felt like the mood was somewhat upbeat when I went there. It, it did. I s- spoke to a bunch of younger galleries, and those younger galleries tended, in general, the ones that I spoke to had done okay. You know, they'd made their money back, or they'd made, you know, so broken even, or they they'd come out ahead. So like Jacqueline Cedar at Good Naked, you know, Jared Lynch at High Noon, those people did fine. I spoke to some of the larger galleries, and nobody's telling me about what they sold, but they are talking about how it's a recession, which nobody talks about when they (laughs) have sold out their booth. right? Right. So I did see that there was kind of a mix. And then when I talked to some friends afterwards, they said that a lot of people didn't do very well at Future Fair. So now one of the things to know about Future Fair is that Future Fair this time, I mean, they're kind of an interesting model because, basically, the the original dealers who uh, joined the fair, they because the organizers didn't have seed funding, the people like the the dealers who participated in the fair the first time around are essentially micro donors, or I can't remember what the the name is for it, but they're like investors and they get a share of the profit. Now they're profitable, I I think, anyway, like the, the size of the fair looks good. And what happened is that NADA moved to a smaller venue and didn't accept a lot of the New York dealers. So they went to Future, and Future looked pretty good. Like, it got a lot of the NADA runoff, and I felt like it was a pretty solid fair. However... When I got to Nada, the mood there, which is uh generally like almost ebullient. like people are excited, there's all sorts of energy. It like, I don't know, it's like a pound of bricks hit these people. It and it had all of the signs that I would identify with uh, shows that are not doing very well. And I actually broke it down into a taxonomy. If you want to hear about this.
1: (laughs) I do. I mean, not as the only fair that I went to, and I would agree. I mean, one of my, my questions for you is like, why, why was there this kind of slight air of desperation, you know, that, um, seemed to kind of mark the fair, even just, you know, on the ground floor by the entrance where they had the gallery list. It looked like somebody had just scuffed up the wall and that nobody had the time or the energy to like paint it. And it was just the small detail, but it sort of foreshadowed, you know, my feelings about the fair.
0: I mean, it's not even a small detail though. First of all, I feel like that space has like just bad mojo at some point like and I remember I don't know if you recall this but like I feel like (laughs) this is how long we've been in the industry but like Mm -hmm. 20 years ago people would talk about you know the old dia space which is where this takes place it was always like oh the former dia place as being a place that could make any art look good and I remember going through a a Robert Irwin show very early on at that time and sort of thinking like, yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's Robert Irwin too, so he, he like the it was like a light show, and it it was beautiful. But I wasn't so overwhelmed with the, the building. And but I just thought like, oh, I must be missing something. And this year it took twenty years, but this year was the year that I was like, Patty, goddammit, it, trust your instincts. This I hate this place. I I. Do not like the venue; it always looks dirty, and <laughs> yeah. and they. I think like there was bad mojo in that space because the last show that I went to see there, like the last fair, was the Volta Fair last year, and it was it was even more depressing than Nada this year. It was just like every bad gallerist... The gallerists who were there who knew they made a mistake were actually openly complaining about it. You know that things are in a bad spot when that when that happens. But when I got to Nada this time around, like there was sort of a dour look on most dealers' faces. And so there were like there's sort of like three types of dealer interactions that I think give you a sense of like a impending doom. Do you want to hear what they are?
1: Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh,
0: okay. So number one is the talker. It doesn't matter who you are. You go into the space, you ask one question, and then you cannot get out of it. Now, this happened uh, very early on. And then after i couldn't count the number of times that it happened but there was a booth that you sent to me it was a picture maybe you remember this i can't remember it off the top of my head basically it was like a sheet of drywall on uh some cut drywall squares and there was like a impressionistic gestural uh brush mark on the slab of drywall that kind of look like the outline of a face. So, and that was like basically the whole booth. (laughs) I could not get out of that booth. (laughs) Oh no. And so you could just sense the anxiety from the, and that was on the first floor. Now this second are the liars. These are people who tell you how great everything is, even though, they're losing their shirts. And the hallmark of a liar, which you can't, like you can't really tell, I I think, like when people are just telling you things, I just tend to believe them. But when I know it's probably not true, like the liars never lie in like little bits, like, oh, I sold one drawing or two drawings or something. Like they're always like, oh, we sold out the whole booth. <laughs> like nobody else. <laughs> So I I don't know why that's the case but I have found that the um that the the big lies tend to be big and you know there's a, there's a difference I think between um I guess like so there's the big lies and then there's the uh what I would I don't know if equivocating is the right word what is the word for like we have sold two paintings and the other three are on reserve, but the other three on reserve are available. This yes. was, this was the experience I had uh, at freeze at the David's Werner booth. Cause I wanted to find out like they had um, a booth of abstract paintings by Susan uh, Frickan, and they had told me that two had sold and that I definitely believed because they were the best paintings there. Um, these were like sort of abstract, uh, like, like almost like Barnett, newman type things, um, huge, huge paintings and they sold for 400 and 500,000. So there were three works that were available, like on reserve, quote unquote. I couldn't, every time they told me that these things were, on reserve, it was quickly filed, but they followed with. But they're available. <laughs> <So>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, you know, it's equivocation also hedging. Like we want to present that we're doing really well, but we also really want to let you know that the these works are you know still for sale. Yeah, um, and, the th- and was there the third, was there a third? Yeah,
0: yeah, there's a third. The third is what I like to call the empty nesters. These are dealers that. Um, have been in their booth for a little bit. Um, but they get, they've gotten nervous enough that they can't stay in their booth anymore. So they're busy talking to other dealers in the fair, like just trying to get any kind of a read on the room to figure out if there's an edge. So that's, you know, and some of these things, like, you know, you're going to, you're going to be doing this anyway. You're going to like all of these things. You're going to be talking to people. You're going to be strategizing. You're going to be. But there is a feeling of anxiety attached to all of these actions that you can identify.
1: What what day did you go to the fair on?
0: On almost all of the days I went on like later days. So they were okay. either like future fair was I went an hour before it closed. Freeze. I was there on a Friday. I th- No, Thursday. So I don't remember how much longer it was open. And Nada, I was there on a Friday. And for Nada, like, this was, I felt so bad for the dealers. Because, like, it was clear they were having a hard time. And the art newspaper had ran this story that was like, is the hot New York... Uh, or not is that like the hot new york art market showing signs of cooling and they're like and they drop those newspapers right off on those dealer steps and it's just like these poor people are like losing their shirts are just like they don't need to see that i mean it's not a reporter's fault obviously
1: no but i mean i think that that sort of answers part of the question of why was there this kind of air of desperation at the fair, which, you know, I I went on Thursday. So I was there kind of early on the opening day and people are still really optimistic. But, you know, Nada in Miami, it's sort of like when that happens, it's like historically like a kind of feeding frenzy at the beginning of the fair. So if the yeah. sales don't happen right away, it's not like they're gonna pick up magically on the weekends. You know, that's where Freeze is telling you that like People who can't afford to buy art generally go on the weekends because they're not at work and the ticket prices are down.
0: This, this is actually where I think, you know, if we broke things in the week one and week two, I think this is why week one had an advantage. Like I, there is a theory going that people spent their money in the first week and then the second week they were done. So,
1: yeah. And how long are collectors who are visiting New York going to stay? It really now the ask is like, come on the Thursday before the weekend, stay through a full weekend affairs, stay in New York for a whole other week to get to a second weekend affairs. And, you know, I'm sh- sure there are some collectors who, who do that, but it's tough for, say, international collectors or people that are traveling to New York for the fairs. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's still that that link, that duration of it that is a little um, exhausting. You know, I can imagine even for the most seasoned uh, collector, and you know, just in general, I don't think that you know the art newspapers headline was you know ungrounded. I mean, they're they're also responding to the auction market, which you know, a quick Google search showed that like the the mark the auction market is down 42 percent based on evening sales a year ago, so that. Um, there's a big dip in what's happening. And I think uh, Neil Meltzer in the New York Times said, you know, this week looked like 2008, which was the year of the financial crisis. So, you know, I I was sort of wondering about that, you know, because the auction results are not necessarily tied immediately to what happens, you know, in the primary market. But, you know, your report, (laughs) you know, on how people were doing uh, doesn't sound great. And the other thing that clued me in immediately, and I don't know if you want to talk about this a little bit more, but again, you know, I don't have a lot of ex- expectations when I go to NADA for what I'm going to see. I just you know, sort of take what they offer. But I thought I would at least see, you know, some like a variety of contemporary art forms. You know, some of the previous iterations of NADA that we've seen had interesting installations, photo-based work. In this case, it was like ninety percent painting. So painting uh, heavy that like some interesting things happened and sure there were some sculptures up on the roof, but it was sort of relegated to its own section by the cafe, not, you know, necessarily terribly well integrated in the show. But I think what that is a sign for me is that we're entering or in a sort of conservative period because, uh, Right now, painting accounts for about 57% of the value of the art market by uh, value of sales. So it's the huge bulk of it. And when I see a lot of paintings in art fair, it tells me people aren't really willing to take a lot of risks. So they're going to the thing they think they can sell. And that, in that case, in our market is painting.
0: I mean, I think there's some truth to that, but I want to add that it is... to my mind, it's a little complicated by a couple of things. I think the first being that I feel like Nada New York, in some ways, it's like it doesn't quite know who it is. I feel like that fair has always somehow been in the shadow of what it can do at Miami. Um, And I also think that like one of the things about the independent art fair, which I didn't get to, that's the one that I felt like, you know, I had some regret about not going to, because I think it probably was the better one. Like the New York times wrote a very good review. That was Martha Schwen- Sch- Schwendener, mm-hmm. And one of the things that she noted was that, yes, there's lots of painting, but there's photography, there's installation art, there's performance art. We used to be able to go to Nada and find unusual things and we haven't been able to do that in the last couple of years and i don't know like whether that also has to do with the fact that if you are a young gallery um, and you i think almost no matter where you are at this point like if you if you're in a city the rents are more expensive and I think it's just harder for people just starting out. I don't know well, whether that, that's, that's like contributing to a kind of conservatism that's showing up at that particular fair.
1: Right. No, I agree with you. I mean, I think we're talking about, you know, economic sort of forces that are sort of limiting what people can do. So if, if yeah. painting is what sells, this is what you kind of have to bring, but the impact of that makes for some really interesting like outcomes so like one thing that i noticed was uh, what stood out to me at, at nada is sort of the most interesting and engaging uh, work was portland's illy twos booth and i don't know i've never said that gallery's name out loud but it's ily2 and okay. they were showing the work of sidonie o'neill and it was like a found resin pool ladder Uh, surrounded by a few small sculptures made out of like modeling clay and rubber. One was sort of like a broken keyboard and there were like four works on paper. But this gallery, like after taking the elevator up, I can't, I hate the stairs in that Dia space too, because it's just like this open. Oh yeah, it gives you vertigo.
0: It's so terrible.
1: Plunged my death, you know, getting up to the fourth floor and kind of walking through this kind of maze of different painting styles the booth looked like a revelation and i stopped you know took a photo of the work checked the artist's name was like it really stood out as being absolutely different from pretty much anything else i'd seen so far through the fair and you know to like point this out like uh, i i was looking at instagram after the fair and i saw that christian vivero's fine had included his highlights of like freeze and nada and the I think the only artist really from uh, NADA that he pointed out was uh, Sidoni's work. You know, it's like one of five photos from Freeze and NADA.
0: I will note that Christian Barberos-Fané is curating the Portland Biennial this year. So that selection. <laughs> like,
1: I, I, okay. But, you know, just in case you don't believe me.
0: <laughs> oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I, will, I, I will do Heinrich. believe you, but I'm just yeah. giving
1: well, we'll, some we'll additional Heinrich. context. Mm-hmm. Will Heinrich then uh, went ahead in the New York Times and called Illy to the sharpest booth in the fair. That's the lead to his review of Nada, you know. And he just described it as the sculptures, a found pool ladder with steel and bronze additions, seemed like a prop from a computer role-playing game come to futuristic life. And it's striking, uh, you know. Will doesn't like dive too much deeper into the work than that. But well, after he didn't have floors, a lot of
0: space like that. Yeah. I, I felt like that review that he wrote was like sort of shorter than I would have. I would have wanted to hear more about the, like read more about the fair.
1: I I would too. But I mean, I feel like there was a reason why he led with that piece in part because, you know, a, a lot of the experience of walking through the rest of the fair was, kind of encountering paintings and just trying to decide is this influenced more by bonard or is it more influenced by alex katz it just felt like this kind of game of uh decoding a lot of references i mean like i don't know if you remember this but um m b gallery on the first floor had uh four painters gabe Cortense, kenrick mcfarlane nate mead and nevia prizik and to me, it looked like the equivalent of like a TGI Friday's appetizer platter of painting. I mean, it was like, Quartence um, <laughs> was, you know, channeling John Kieran via Inka Asenai, McFarlane folding Francis Bacon into Alex Katz, while Prigic, you know, like melded the colorful abstraction of like Calder with an artist like Marie Lavina. I mean, there it just was this kind of like sampling that made me think of, you know, um, Laura Hopman's atemporal painting show, The Forever Now, way back in 2014. And it was that sense that, like, seeing Illy 2's booth was like a moment, like, where I was like, wait, what is this? I'm not sure really what I'm looking at right now. And I'm going to have to. It, kind of definitely,
0: it definitely stuck out. I had, to, I had to look it up while we were talking just to be able to identify it. And I immediately recognized it. I think it might also be amongst the larger sculptures in the show. So, yeah,
1: there were a few tables of smaller things, or there were definitely a few other sculptures. I mean, certainly there was, but that's that feeling of like two things happen. One is that because there's so much painting, anything that is different really stands out and maybe even takes on sort of outsized weight. Because in reflection, that, you know, Sidoni's work still owes a sort of debt to post internet art. It's not like, The work is so radical. It's just in the context of so much other sameness that it really stood out and felt like, my God, we need this because you can tell me if I'm wrong. I think in Nada, I only saw one video. Maybe there was another set of TV somewhere, but there was like a single channel video at Workplace Gallery by Joel Kayak. Um,
0: microscope had a lot had a bunch of videos actually they were really beautiful i didn't write down the name of the artist but they were they were videos that were sort of inside these kind of jewel boxes they were really incredible
1: yeah microscope gallery that's great i'm glad you know i think i might have bypassed those or missed them it's also got a little do you remember what
0: floor that was on i think they were on the third floor okay yeah Yeah. i mean this is these are the types of markers that you have to find things right like what floor and i also sort of tried to determine like okay what is the best floor i don't even know if there's any point to that i i personally liked a lot of the stuff on the uh, second floor rachel offner was there bridget finn's gallery Ray's finn i think From Detroit was there, Jack Hanley was there, and um, Northern Southern, that's a gallery that's run by my friend, Philip Niemeyer. He was there. What's the hole on the second floor? Yeah, I
1: can't remember what floor they were on, but they certainly had the kind of, I would say most, uh, you could give them an award for like the most ambitious booth. Maybe there was like, you know, a a whole front booth of, you know, gallery artists and then a whole secondary installation with like a built out room. Um, it looked a little bit like a fun house. I mean, it was, yeah. Well, it was
0: like a, it was a log cabin and they actually, they had this guy, the, the artist Matt Belk had created decoys that he had painted in these like sort of sunset colors and things like that, uh, of ducks and all the paintings, had this kind of um, smooth edge, uh, like rounded treatment of forms that I think is fairly popular right now. But uh, the, yeah, you know- you're
1: describing one of the other artists that was at m bs you know, kind of soft rounded figures and forms, a little cartoonish. Yeah, uh, I think, you know, for me, the, the galleries that sort of were also sort of exceptions to the work that I was seeing, Coro uh, Galleries booth. That gallery is based in Guadalajara, and you know it was also like one of the good things about going to the fair is actually running into a few friends. So I saw Alejandro Almanza Pareda uh, at the gallery. He was showing sculpture. Um, the gallery had some paintings by my friend Claudia Pena Salinas, and it's just nice to get to like talk to an artist at the fair. But you know, I think their booth also stood out because there was a mix of sculpture. They had Juan Capistran's text-based canvases, and, you know, I felt like there was a little bit of like a kind of political awareness happening um, in the work that I ne- that wasn't necessarily seeing in a lot of the other painting. I also, uh, San Juan's Embajada Gallery, which is run by another uh, kind of friend and Hunter alumni, I think, uh, Krista Rivera, who co-runs the gallery with Manuela Paz, who actually used to work at NADA. And they had, they had a solo booth by the artist Lulu uh, Verona. And so these were also like embroidered textile works that included some reggaeton lyrics. And again, like having a booth where it was a single artist was also a bit of like a relief to be able to stop and see like a coherent, you know, show of work. Um, oh, yeah. Which- yeah. You know, like Wendy White also had a kind of quiet site-specific installation sort of tucked around the corner of Shulamit Nazarene's booth. Uh, It was like a rest stop to like kind of sit with one artist's work in a carpeted space with curtained walls, you know, but it definitely felt like it was sort of, you know, pushed back into the corner, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, I I also ran into the artist Matt Jones, who had like kind of co-organized a pad gallery's booth. But one of the sort of notables for me there was Kat um, Chamberlain who does graphite drawings, in this case around sort of yellow paper. And I, I think I had seen her work at a spring break art fair. I would have also- She's have a great artist. A She's a great yeah, artist. wonderful. I mean, seeing yeah. a drawing is like finding a, a rare animal at the fair, <laughs> you know, so that, that was great. And, uh, you know, entrance galleries booth of Pat McCarthy's like kind of wonderfully weird photo based collage quilts and sculptures you know, also kind of stood out for me. And I guess what I'm saying is those were things that I was really starting to look for and want in a fair that just, you know, had had a, a huge array of painting. You know, if you were looking for a kind of painting uh, in whatever style, you could p- probably find it. But, you know, I was really drawn to things that were more, you know, trying to at least show a singular vision or some other concerns.
0: When you were at not a- Did you notice any kind of trends? This is something that I think like many of us like to do when we go to fairs, but I actually found it difficult to do it, Nada.
1: Well, I think that's the thing. Like I can say that there was a lot of painting, but when you crack that open, there was sort of every kind of painting, even from that kind of drywall piece with the kind of ironic gesture of putting an orange on top of it and setting it on some bricks to very impressionistic you know, landscapes that were as fuzzy as like any Bernard painting, you know, I could kind of get a sense of like an art historical sampling. And I think if there was a trend that I was thinking about, I don't know if you saw this piece by uh, Martin Herbert, you know, the kind of Berlin-based critic who wrote that book, Tell Them I Said No, where (laughs) he wrote this piece called, Have We Reached the Endpoint of Revivalism? And, you know, in his case, he's really sort of questioning the idea that like post-internet art is already returning as like it's a new or a revived uh, aesthetic form when it's still like the body of post-internet art really isn't in the ground or anything. You know, Josh Klein has a retrospective at the Whitney right now.
0: That's something that I've heard a few critics talk about. I, I talked about it like, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, but it was something that I had picked up from somebody. Two, which is this, uh, just I never went that deep into it, but just this idea that uh, nostalgia, ev- like, does it even really exist when nothing truly goes away?
1: Right. There's not even the time period to develop nostalgia. I think, you know, that question is connected to what Herbert's asking, but he also just sort of notes in his article, he says, but currently, uh, it appears the superabundance of ahistorical painting in galleries is making anyone not profiting from it go a little crazy. And there's only one novel-looking thing uh, left to bring back. And then he goes on to say that is sort of why he's seeing a lot of post-internet art coming back in, into the galleries. But I think like that's where my question sort of breaks from his a little bit you know, painting, there's a lot more happening in painting than just a kind of derivative aesthetic borrowing. I mean, I think there's a kind of a wealth of interesting and engaging figurative painting that's deriving its value more from the inclusion of bodies and cultures and identities that have been sort of historically absent from painting. So there's like the social and cultural content that is pushing painting in one direction. And then maybe on the other hand, there is this kind of like, just sampling of different styles of, you know, whether it's abstract or figurative with the content is not necessarily as important as like what historical aesthetic it sort of references. And that's where I start to kind of see like a fork in that makes that conversation around painting more complicated than just saying it's all revivalism. Because there's a lot of reasons if you're making figurative work, uh, based on identity, that you want to kind of maybe circumvent <laughs> modernism to some degree, you know, and that it's not just a revival. It's doing some other things that I think are important. But I kind of agree with Herbert, though. It does make you feel a little bit crazy to walk into a fair and see, uh, you know, so many sort of ahistorical paintings in one place and and sort of just ask why. And then a, a second question, is that good for art? Because I think at the beginning of the conversation, you pointed out that like it's good for artists to go to spaces and be able to be able to afford to see what is happening in art. But if you go to a fair like NADA, you might walk away with an impression that like contemporary art is pretty much about painting, maybe a little bit of sculpture, uh, two videos or something. There's it, it creates a maybe a kind of slightly distorted picture of what is possible with contemporary art.
0: I mean, I feel like that's always going to be the case with the fairs. And I I think one thing that is very true, but I don't know, I think it's one of the challenges that people have who don't live in New York and maybe necessarily don't even want to go to all these fairs is that the fairs all have very distinct personalities and identities. And if you're outside of that, it's not going to mean anything to you. If you are inside of it, it represents probably more time than you have <laughs> to really see what that means. And, you know, I was really glad that you gave the context that you did uh, from uh, Herbert's writing about the kind of revival of post internet art, which, because one of the things that I had when I went to visit Freeze was that there was a lot of gradient art there. And I was kind of like, Oh, this has come back. And then I was like, Well, did it ever really go away? You Mm -hmm. know, and one of the the questions that I have about this sort of stuff is just like, where, like, where are these references coming from? Like, what do they really mean? Like, because they, they are, they're coming from, for whatever reason, these aesthetics are more popular in the culture at this particular point, like, and I actually don't think that post-internet art is some particular touchstone that we're bringing back for a specific reason. I do feel like 90s nostalgia is like in full bloom right now, which pains my heart, but that's where we are, uh, just in terms of like music, I think. but uh, <laughs> the art is is fine. But like another thing that I saw was a, like a lot of metallic. Metallic is everywhere in the fairs and it's like colored metallic and oversized chains. Like, and I suppose this is like maybe similar to the oversized t-shirt trend of like 2011, 2012, but now it's like chains. But when I look at like chains and this like metallic surface, I feel like there has to be something more there like the the oversized t-shirt trend and oversized clothing seemed to me to be somewhat random you know like just a just sort of a trend whereas the particular palette and the iconography that is coming out like it does feel like an amplification of things that represent wealth be it like tech wealth like the chain is, like, it wasn't just, like, chain links. It was also, like, you know, baubles or things like that that would be displayed in ways that, like, made them look like they were floating and they're very, very large and, uh, you know, typically, like, ridiculous rich people shit. But to me, I just, I kept trying to figure out whether this was, like, a sort of specific, like, statement of wealth that like maybe felt a little bit overstated. And I I think that's like the garishness is kind of part of the culture right now. So that's something that we're, we're also kind of seeing reflected back to us at these higher end art fairs. Uh, And I feel like it makes them harder to relate to. Like I, when I go to these spaces, I never used to feel quite as alienated as I do now. Uh, and even like on the top floor, you know, I think you and I were exchanging text messages with a friend of ours, Barry Hoggard, uh, and we were all laughing. So at the top floor, they have sort of what's equivalent to an airport lounge where you, you know, you have like, the, the duty free booze and the fancy watches and the cosmetics. But now, instead of cosmetics, they have this like red light station so that you can get red light therapy. So, like now, you know, you have facial sculpting tools instead of like eyeshadow. So, <laughs> it's very, yeah. very weird.
1: Yeah I you know, well, last year our friend Kevin McCoy was you know sort of showing his quantum piece, you know, yes. in the kind of VIP section at Freeze in that area. You know, and I, I thought he was very sort of like smart and brave for like staying with that piece and showing it as like an LV advertising sort of <laughs> marketing tool as well or LG for their their TVs. But that was also where there was that terrible piece by the Danish artist whose name I'm going to forget, who had like the socially engaged piece at the champagne stand. Where Wait, was it yet
0: behind? Like, yeah,
1: yeah, yep y- behind, right? Yeah. You know, people could get like a piece of chalk from reaching into the champagne booth. and like. Yeah, it was, it was
0: embarrassing. You know,
1: like, yeah. And I mean, I feel like everything you just described about baubles and metallics and chains, you know, that that really does feel distinctly freeze, you know, like that that aesthetic, I I didn't really run into that at Nada. You know, I felt like we were obviously back at sort of the entry level of the mid-tier at Nada where there weren't that many sort of uh slickly produced, you know, high high value objects, you know, kind of whole gallery went for some of that presentation, but for the most part it was Uh, much more modestly scaled, you know, and sized
0: works. I mean, there's nothing wrong necessarily with like slickly produced things. It's just, you do feel really weird. And I do like, I want to point out a couple of other things that you may find interesting or or not, but like, so to even get into the fair, uh, there are two entrances in Uh, the shed, right? So you can go through the front, which is closest to, or maybe it's the back, I don't know what they call it, the side that's closest to the suicide sculpture, the the big shawarma thing. Or you can go through the street side. So because I'm coming from the subway, I I went to the side that's closest to the shawarma and I couldn't get in because Mm. that was a special, it was the Deutsche Bank entrance. And only VIPs could go in that way. So then I had to go in the other way. The biggest problem with Freeze is always the context of Freeze. And so the nonprofit stuff that we had complained about last year being really, uh, like, in some ways, almost poorly placed because it felt very clearly like art washing. It was, I think, it felt even further reduced to me um, because the uh, basically what they had, they had like uh, I think I think it was an Artadia project, but it, basically there were plates that you could collect by very famous artists. So you could buy a plate, and these plates were supposed to actually it could have been for Artadia. Artadia was somewhere else, but like these plates were supposed to help feed the homeless. Oh, yeah, you could buy a cosplay plate for, for two hundred and fifty bucks. And it was, there was an addition of 250 and they had like at least 50 of these on the wall. And it's like the most tone deaf thing I could possibly imagine. You know, like these people do not give a shit. (laughs) They just want their fancy plate. And then, you know, on the upstairs, they had, you know, basically like the nonprofit stuff is relegated to the halls. So like the hallway art, the stuff that you don't pay attention to is the nonprofit wing and they had this artist this was an artist who i worked with when i curated a show for the columbia mfa program back maybe 2014 16 something like that and his name is hector garcia and he works a lot with like chains and fishnets and leather and like there's a whole sort of gay snm aspect to this work and they these things were just like hanging in the cafeteria and like hanging in the hallway, and there was something about them that just felt like so neutered.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, it's it, go ahead. And
0: that, like, just a complete like that, paired with what I feel is just like overt misogyny within that fair, makes it just—it really hurts. I don't know why I go to it. Honestly, like it really hurts my soul. Like I, I feel like maybe I should just stop.
1: Well, I stopped um, in part because like those ticket prices aren't just barriers for entry, but they kind of are symptomatic of this kind of like bifurcation or separation of yeah, of art from any connection to say our lived experience or a a different class reality i mean in it with with freeze it's happening on so many different levels like you can't ignore that suicide machine the shawarma because you're going to hudson yards which is like a place designed for the ultra wealthy it's a spectacular failure because they made like 60 percent of it commercial space they weren't even really giving a shit about residential housing. And so it's it's sort of doomed right now, you know, uh, in relation to like the huge shift in the need for commercial real estate. It's uh, it's uh, like a completely unnecessary thing that they built. And then so you have to go to Hudson Yards, you have to walk by the giant shawarma that, you know, people are killing themselves on and you have the disjunction of seeing tourists outside taking photos of it. And those tourists aren't heading to freeze because freeze is increasingly becoming this thing that is for the ultra wealthy. And, you know, it's the fact that that VIP lounge at the top floor with its, you know, sort of very overtly luxurious things, then put the artist's work that you were just describing, Hector's work, which is now just like background in a cafe. You know, it's not just neutered. It's like it's forced to function as just you know a kind of bobble for the wealthy that they can sort of choose to look at and then that nod to philanthropy that if you just buy one of these plates you're going to solve homelessness is just disgusting you know and so yeah. it's like on so many different levels the experience of freeze becomes alienating I think to artists you know and granted you know people are you know trying to sell their work and get it in front of collectors and there's a draw to that but if you're making you know political work or you're making work that you want to have a social impact it seems really hard to to get that message across especially the way you describe how freeze you know sort of relegates or marginalizes the public art pieces to like the stairwells you know it's sort of it's just outside. It's in relation to these other things. But, you know, and that goes just how you can even enter the space. It's got like two entrances,
0: you know, one for the VIPs. and, and Yeah, the they have, that it like, turned. it feels like you have a poor door, honestly. Yeah. Like that's the yeah. thing. And so... that,
1: that, that, that runs so counter to this kind of longstanding idea that when we make art, the gallery might not be the best way to do it. But it's, you know, the access is there for people who want to come see the work. There aren't these kind of like hoops and barriers. And the work, yeah, I, you know, I just think that Freeze is becoming something that is more (laughs) succession-like. I know. That's
0: the way it feels Uh, to me, too. Yeah.
1: And so it's fitting that, you know they filmed one of their episodes for Kendall's birthday in the shed, which remains like a high point of just the series and also like art's relationship to wealth in that case.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to wrap things up here. Are there any final thoughts that you have about nada or freeze or wealth or succession or any of the things that we've commented on today? You know,
1: I think my hope is that the dealers, who went to nada and uh kind of maybe played it a little bit safe by focusing on painting and what they thought would sell well when they're sitting down and reading the press about the fair that when they keep seeing like illy two's name and that this is the sharpest booth that maybe it should encourage them to take a little bit more of a risk if they can i understand there's pressures to kind of try to sell things but from what i'm hearing is that doesn't necessarily like It didn't help, you know, if they weren't able to make sales, you know, maybe the, I I don't know if the fair model is going to keep working for people in this kind of like economic moment, but just, you know, if you want artists to be seen, or we want like a ecosystem for art that is a little bit less homogeneous, I would love it. You know, if just people take a look, you know, at the kind of generally just kind of praise that that booth got for, you know, showing work that kind of stood out and just didn't kind of follow the larger trend at nada, at least of showing, um, a lot of, uh, v- varieties of painting.
0: I think that's really good ad- like advice and sort of a take home message from all of this. Like, yes, there's economic uncertainty, but I think, and I suppose this is a more generalized, but, uh, I, I do feel like taking a risk and doing so to like find your own voice, like that's always the thing that's going to pay off. And you know we see that on big stages and smaller stages and everywhere in between. So, yeah. All
1: right, Patty. Well, great to talk about art and the fairs, even though they're maybe not the greatest things right now. But uh, it's good to <laughs> talk. All about right.
0: That. Thanks so much for joining me. for listening if you like the show please leave a review and share it with a friend it really helps get that valuable information out to more artists just like you you can find all of the names and the links that we reference in this conversation at workshop.art slash podcast